turn your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. We'll finish chapter 4 this morning uh, and begin venturing into the Sermon on the Mount next week. It's funny, when I was with Smitty this week, uh, talking to him, he, uh, they have a church service at the facilities app. And he was telling me um, that he's okay with it, but he doesn't like it very much. And, and I was asking him why, and he told me because the guy comes in and speaks, and he has a whole stack of books. And he said, the Bible's always at the bottom. And that bugs him. And uh, he said, I don't want those other books. Just, I want the Bible. I said, well, Smitty, uh, <laughs> I understand. Because the power's in the Word. And this morning, seeing Christ's power begin to be unveiled, uh, I think is just a glorious moment in the ministry and the work of Christ. Uh, last week, we began to see the first of two ways that Christ brings his kingdom into existence. Uh, and last week, it was from his words. And there's so much about his truth and the content, uh, what he has to say in his preaching and and Matthew's kind of given us a little bit of a preemptive strike, if you will. Uh, he, he says words, and then he's going to give us the whole Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And now he's going to give us the works, verses 23 through 25. And then uh, chapters 8 and 9 are really all about the works of Christ. And so he really is a very thoughtful author, um, an intentional gospel writer. And, and he wants his audience, his readers, and so that's 2,000 years ago and us today, to really wrap our minds around what is happening with the king's arrival and the kingdom's unveiling. I said this in my prayer, and I think it just is helpful to give a baseline for the way we think about the kingdom. This, if, if you're looking at my notes, this is not my notes. This is one of those, as I was thinking this morning, I was like, I don't think I've explained this, and this is important for you to know. When we talk about Christ's kingdom, it is this already, not yet. So Christ is not here physically ruling and reigning. Uh, we don't have a conquering of the whole globe in a way that God has said, this is mine. And uh, as one famed theologian says, God stakes his name on every square inch of the earth and says, mine, uh, about it. This hasn't happened yet. We're looking forward to that moment. And and I won't go down the rabbit trail of saying lots of Christians disagree on how all that's going to happen and what all that's going to look like. But, but what we're all agreed upon is it hasn't happened yet. That's the not yet portion. And, and we think of it, if you think of very general terms of heaven and no more sin and no more suffering and, and none of that, that's, that's the essence of the kingdom is it's only Christ. We don't need the son because we have the son, right? That's the kingdom, but none of that has happened yet. But Jesus shows up, and John the Baptist shows up before him and says, the kingdom's coming. Jesus shows up and says, the kingdom is here. Later in Luke chapter 12, he has this, Jesus has an interaction with the Pharisees, and he says, the kingdom is here. But then later he says, the kingdom's not here. So what, how do we think about this? And even what Matthew's doing this morning, Christ comes, and the presence of the king starts to build his kingdom. And Jesus is far more worried about the citizens of a kingdom than the land of a kingdom, right? So um, there's lots, not to go down this rabbit trail, but just helps us understand in our current political climate, like what are our borders? That's about land, kingdom, right? The conversation about who can vote is about citizens of a kingdom. And so we even understand the differences in our modern day between land mass and citizenry. When Jesus shows up, he's building the citizens of a kingdom. He's not worried at this point about the land of a kingdom. And so he is winning through salvation new citizens of his kingdom that he is king of. So we say things like, Jesus is the king of my heart. He is the Lord of my life. He rules over me, and I am first and foremost a citizen of his kingdom under King Jesus as a believer and, and so church, this moment even, becomes a little bit of a visible manifestation of his kingdom. That doesn't mean everyone in this room is a believer or a kingdom citizen, 
But, but church exists in such a way to celebrate the arrival of the king and that there are a people who are following that king. But we're all looking for the day when he's here and it becomes physically revealed and unveiled and there is a land. So it's really important that you understand those differences even as we press forward in the gospel of Matthew. Everything Jesus is doing then is to showcase I'm the king this is what my kingdom looks like. So last week was words. This week is works. How does he establish his kingdom? By words and by works. Maybe another way for us to understand it is to be reminded of how dark and desperate the world really was and is. It has been 4,000 plus years since Adam and Eve sinned and sin enters the world through Adam primarily into the human race and darkness arrives. And so suddenly we have to leave the garden because lest we eat of the, the tree of life and live forever in this sinful condition, is God's design that we shouldn't live forever this way? So you're at least physically going to die. Every one of us will. Um, and, and so she, she, Eve and Adam witness, bear witness at least by hearing of their son murdering their son and and just darkness pervades. And so for 4,000 plus years, the promise that a serpent crushing one would come has been, has been waiting, but no arrival. We just finished studying a few months ago, Nehemiah, where even if the people of God move in back into the city, unless he does a work in their hearts, they go right back to idolatry. We need something more, something different. And, and so it has been a very dark, very difficult place. Now the king shows up. What's that look like? How can we prepare our hearts for that? I, I think we can actually go back in history a little bit and, and think back to Pearl Harbor. And when Pearl Harbor happens and something like 2,500 or so service members and citizens are, are killed that December 7th morning, it just is a stunning moment for the United States. And, and it's shocking because since 1939, uh, when Hitler first, Germany invaded Poland September 1st, 1939, when that happened, the United States has done almost everything they can to avoid getting into this war. It's like, we don't want a part of this conflict. So for years now, from September 1st, 39 till December of 41, it's like, we don't want to be involved in this conflict. So we'll send goods and uh, we'll send supplies, but, but we don't want to send our service members. We don't want to get involved in the war. Well, suddenly... Pearl Harbor happens, and we don't have a choice. So December 8th, uh, it wasn't even a unanimous vote. December 8th, they say, yes, we're going to get in the war. We declare war on Japan. Within two days, Germany and Italy declare war on, on the United States. We're in. We knew this was what, this was, what was going to happen, so now we're in. But the main force of our Navy has been destroyed. Our military is relatively small and weak, technologically behind the rest of the world. And, and yet the president knew that we have to do something. So Roosevelt gathered his military leaders and he said, we've got to do something to show that, that we're going to respond to this. Come up with a plan. And they couldn't come up with it. Nobody knew what to do. They, they had all these ideas. And it was actually a submarine captain who came up with this idea. And he said, I think we should bomb Tokyo. And they're like, What? And so they hatch this crazy plan where something like 15 B-25 bombers are going to launch off the deck of an aircraft carrier. And then they realize we won't be able to land back on the aircraft carrier because it's just too hard to land a bomber back on the aircraft carrier. And so we're going to have to ditch these planes in China that's not yet occupied or in Russia. They couldn't get Russia to agree to let us land there. So we're going to, it's a one-way trip just to drop some bombs. And so in April... April 18th, 16 B-25s launched from an aircraft carrier, um, 3 o'clock in the morning, and they begin making their several hours flight. And suddenly, over Tokyo, they hear the droning of bombers they'd never heard before. And they intentionally avoided any civilian targets, and they bombed mainland Japan. And it was absolutely shocking. And almost completely ineffective. <laughs> I mean, 16 bombers simply couldn't do enough to swing the war, right? Like, it means so little. 
But for the American public, the first and most profound effect was the American public was immediately bolstered. It had been a few months since Pearl Harbor, and it was a way of saying, we're not taking this lying down. We will push back against the darkness. The effect of the bombing, the bombs themselves, relatively insignificant. The effect on morale in the United States, profound. It did shake the Japanese Imperial uh, Navy and Air Force to the point that they went ahead and launched early an attack on Midway that they weren't prepared for that led to an overwhelming victory for the United States. It also caused them to hold back four divisions of airplanes because they didn't know when we might attack them again. Airplanes that they really needed elsewhere. And so there were ripple effects that they didn't even foresee that were benefits. But the primary benefit was this. We're not going to be defeated. We will fight back. And I think that's an important place for us to begin with Jesus establishing his kingdom. Because even this week, when I, when I walked into that memory care unit, here's a brother in Christ I've known for 17 years. And, and unless Jesus does a miracle, he is dying of, of dementia. He's shriveling. And he can't function. And there was a lady there crying, asking me to take her home. These are tough places. Just in the last month, you have experienced, and even in a church as small as ours, loss and suffering and struggle. And so it feels much more like Pearl Harbor than it does VJ Day when we finally win. It feels like we live in this dark and difficult world, but what Matthew is telling us is the king has shown up and he has brought his power with him. And that should bring us comfort because he came once, he is coming again. And so when we look at Matthew, I want you to understand what Jesus has done in your life with his words is to call you to be kingdom citizens. And what he's doing with his works is he's demonstrating my words matter. My words have power. And I am convinced that the king's power brings comfort for all of his true followers. And so having said that, I want to read, and so I hope you have your Bibles this morning. We're going to be right here in these few verses, right at the end of Matthew 4. Matthew 4, verses 23 down through verse 25. Then we'll unpack it this morning and by God's grace receive encouragement, instruction through the Spirit using the Word. Matthew writes this, and he, speaking of Jesus, remember he's just called the disciples to him. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan." And so let's begin this morning to just understand what Jesus is doing. The first thing he's doing by, by showing up this way and doing mission is he's really putting the enemy on notice. Just like we put Japan on notice, look, we're going to hit you back and war's coming. You just poked the bear, right? Jesus is putting the enemy on notice. I have actually arrived and this is what it's going to look like. And he does his ministry in three ways. It's, I think it's very obvious in the, in the text here. First way, he's, he teaches. The Bible says he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues. <clears throat> I love the fact that it says their synagogues. It's one of Matthew's favorite phrases to describe their synagogues. Now, it's interesting because Matthew's a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. Synagogues are notoriously and obviously Jewish. Uh, synagogue was the building, the gathering place. And the easiest way for you and I to think of it is, is like a church, but more like a church community center. Uh, and so lot, this is where they gathered for all kinds of things. If they, if they needed to even have a big place for a wedding feast, um, funeral services, obvious weekly Sabbath gatherings, gatherings throughout the week for different teaching, this was the spot in every town would have its synagogue. Uh, it literally just means the gathering place. 
But Matthew says it's their synagogue. And when he does this, and if you uh, see it, I think he does it about five more times throughout his gospel. It is always intended to give a little bit of distance from Jesus and them. Now that's interesting. Why, Why do that? Because lots of what Jesus does in the synagogues is exactly what they would do in the synagogue. Jesus teaches in the synagogue. They taught in the synagogues. Jesus reads scripture, the Tanakh, which is uh, the Hebrew form for their Old Testament, what we would recognize as the Old Testament. The Torah is just the first five books, but the Tanakh is all of it. Jesus would read from the Tanakh. We know he read from Isaiah, the prophets would explain from the prophets. And so they would read from the Tanakh. Jesus would read from the Tanakh. They would teach. Jesus would teach. They would meet. They, Jesus would meet. They would gather. Jesus would, Like there's all these things they did in the synagogue that Jesus did also. Why say their synagogues? Well, there's one thing they did in the synagogues that, that helps us to begin to understand the difference. They would also punish people in the synagogues. And so if you did something in the Jewish culture, uh, particularly religiously, that they disagreed with, then that is where they would actually punish you. And so later in Matthew 10, 17, Jesus points this out, and he says, they're going to take my followers and deliver them up in the synagogues to be whipped and beaten. And so when Matthew says their synagogues, and later Jesus talks about being whipped and beaten in the synagogue, the difference is this. The enemy had infiltrated their synagogues. Satan had crept in to their synagogue teaching. So it wasn't just purely, let's open what God's word is and explain it. It was, we'll open God's word, plus all the commentary from all the rabbis over the years, plus whatever else we think you should be doing, plus all the little cultural rules we have that go along with it. And if you don't do what we say, then we're going to punish you. Jesus the king did not come to prop up the religious system of his day's Judaism. He came with revolutionary truth. He came, as Matthew calls it, with the gospel of the kingdom. That is the good news of the kingdom. That is this reality, that it really doesn't matter if you're a male or female. doesn't matter if you're a boy or girl. doesn't matter if you are Jewish or Gentile. You're a sinner, and you can come into the kingdom through my power. And they ultimately hate that. And so when Jesus comes, he comes teaching And he is making a bold declaration through his teaching that I bring a different message. The Jewish religious system was was filled with a sense of racial superiority. You'll see this a number of times as as Jesus engaged the Jewish leaders. He'll say, you think just because you're sons of Abraham, that's not going to get you anywhere. And that makes him mad. He says, I would rather go and minister like Elijah the prophet and care for the widow of Zarephath, who, who was potentially a Gentile. And that makes him mad. Jesus isn't interested in propping up their sense that that they're the best thing coming and going just because they were born Jewish. He says that's not what this is about. God always intended for the Jewish nation to minister to everyone, and they weren't doing that. So he's not going to prop up their racial superiority, their isolationism, their judgmentalism. He's come to teach truth, inconvenient truth, deep truth, the kind of truth that sets people free. Every time he, te- he teaches, he puts the enemy on notice that time is up. Now, these synagogues were not, don't just think small. This is the ruins of a synagogue that was in Gamla. It easily could have held 400 people. Jesus shows up in these synagogues teaching, and it's a place where they would, he would actually cast out demons at times. He argued with his opponents in the synagogues. Uh, the synagogue, when he went to teach, was a way to pick a fight with the rulers of the synagogues. You know, I, I think it's fascinating um, how Jesus never shied away from the conflicts that would result from speaking truth. How often we are tempted to hide truth because we're afraid of making somebody mad. And I would hope that we would all understand that there is a right way to communicate truth that we know is offensive and there is a wrong way. Jesus did not shy away from this when he would open the the word and begin to teach them. 
There is a slight nuance here between teaching and preaching. And so I just give you this definition just to help us understand it. It's information and truth correction. Primarily, that's what teaching is. Now, those of you who've been here long enough, you've heard the difference between you when you've heard me teach or preach. Um, for a long time, I used the evening, we had an evening service, and I used the evening service to teach philosophy. Uh, how do we think about why, what, what we do and why we do thing, the things we do as a church? And uh, in Sunday school, when, I, when I've taught, and there is a difference that we think culturally about what the mode looks like or maybe even interaction with that looks like. But primarily teaching focuses on giving truth, disseminating truth, and correcting error. And it's interesting because preaching does that as well, but, but that's where teaching's focus is at. And so if we think all the way back to the way the enemy works, the enemy all the way back in the garden, the first thing he begins to do is he tries to twist truth. He, he tries to twist God's words, tries to call into question. This is exactly what he does with Jesus in his uh, temptation in the wilderness, where he tries to take truth and twist it. Teaching is all about correcting a warped understanding of truth. And so even in, in sermons that can happen, but primarily that's what truth or teaching is doing. It's saying, what is truth? How can I information download? You've got to have information to work off of. Uh, my kids have had wonderful teachers, by and large, wonderful teachers, but they, like all of us, have experienced really bad teachers at times, right? Teachers that are just like, here, just do this. Uh, I'm not going to teach you math. Just do Khan Academy. You know, teach yourself. Uh, there's a difference. I'm not a math guy. So there's a difference between somebody who understands math and teaches it and somebody who's just saying, watch the video, right? Um, there's good teaching. There's bad teaching. Good teaching recognizes people need to be equipped with information. I just took several minutes at the beginning of the sermon to talk about the, what the kingdom is. That was a teaching moment. I was downloading information for you because you've got to have that to build off of. And this is what Jesus would do. So when he's going in the synagogue, he's recognizing these people need lots of information. They need content of material, and they need that in a way that corrects error. This is the way Jesus shows up, and it's part of his work using his word. But he doesn't just teach, he preaches. He makes it clear, and Matthew wants to make that difference, that distinction as well. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. The proclamation there is what we would commonly think of preaching. The preaching of Christ focuses on the emphasis of the gospel being brought to bear in people's lives. Um, there's not a different, I, I had someone for years, they told me, I'm, I'm, I'd say, hey, what are you reading your Bible or what are you studying? They would say, I'm studying the, the gospel of the kingdom and I'm studying, like it's just, I'm trying to wrap my mind around what is the gospel of the kingdom? What is the gospel of the kingdom? And if the, for the first time, while I'll be like, oh yeah, that's a great study. That's a great study. After a couple of years, I mean, seriously, it was like three or four years. And I kept, they kept saying this. I was like, okay, like, do you know what the gospel of the kingdom is? And I started asking those questions and I'm still getting the same thing. So like by year five, I finally was like, you do know that that was just Matthew's way of emphasizing he's the king. There's not a different gospel here. It's not different. And he's like, oh, really? I'm like, okay. So teaching moment. The gospel of the kingdom is the gospel. What is it? Good news. That's what gospel is. What is the good news? Well, it doesn't start sounding good, does it? We're all sinners, condemned because of our sin, on our way to an eternal hell. God, love in his great love and compassion for us, sent his son, who lived a sinless, perfect life, who died of his own decision, no one takes his life, but he lays down his life for the sheep. He sacrificed then, taking our sin, the punishment of your sin, my sin, the sin of the world upon himself, so that payment for your sin and my sin has been made. And if you will turn from your sin and believe in him by faith that he is who he says he is, he's done what he says he's done, I'm going to follow him, he will save you. That's the gospel. It's beautiful, isn't it? It is profoundly simple and yet astoundingly deep. That's the gospel. That's the good news of God. It's the good news of the kingdom. Because, as I said a few minutes ago, when you get saved, what do you become? A citizen of the kingdom. 
You're now ruled and reigned over by King Jesus. And so Jesus comes and that's what he's preaching. The significant difference, or the nuanced difference between teaching and preaching is preaching always is a proclamation of this reality and a call to respond. Teaching, good teaching, should also lead you to a point of understanding that this truth should make me live differently because it does you no good to look into the mirror of God's word and walk away unchanged, James says. And so if you come and you hear teaching, but it doesn't change the way you think, then you either have a teacher problem or a student problem. Good teaching, information, helps you to begin to think different. Preaching, though, always, always must be a call to be different, though. What are you going to do with this information? It is the nuanced difference. And so when Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom in a preaching way, what is the proclamation? Repent. Do something different. Don't just walk away saying, I understand, oh, I knew that already. Uh, like the guy I talked to years ago, and I asked him about spending time in the Word, and he said, well, I, I mean, I've grown up in church. I've read lots of the Bible. I don't, there's nothing I'm going to read there I don't already know. I'm like, okay. Um, that is astoundingly arrogant and crazy because there's such depth to this. And what it also revealed was somebody who had a heart that came to the word with a mindset that it's only about what comes in my mind rather than what it does in my life and in my heart. Good preaching calls for a response. Good sermons are not motivational speeches, but they should motivate the believer to grow, change, and press on. Good sermons are not primarily information download, although they should instruct us and remind us of truth. Good sermons can't change us, but they should lead us to the very brink of change. They should lead us to the doorway of change. Will I step through it, and will I live differently? Good sermons lead us to consider what should I do next with this information. The next three chapters of Jesus are an example of the core of his sermons. And you can't read through the Sermon on the Mount without being brought to a point of absolute change. You can't read things like blessed are the meek without asking, am I meek? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Am I poor? Blessed are the pure in heart. Am I Blessed are the peacemakers. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes or the Pharisees, you can in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. This is how you can tell who the false teachers are. By their fruits you shall know them. Build your house upon the rock and not upon... You can't get through Jesus' sermon without being compelled, what am I going to do with it? That's what good preaching does. It is a work of Christ. He is unashamedly bold in the proclamation of the truth and calling people to do something different. A few years ago, there was a, dust up is a, maybe a wrong way to describe it, but there was a conversation among pastors, broadly evangelical. Should we in our sermons call people to respond and change? I... I I'm a little stupid because I'm like, you called it a sermon. That's what sermons do. Like, duh. Why would you not do that? Because that's how you make people mad. Telling you information doesn't irritate unless it's confronting your error. Calling you to live differently, though, that's what offends people. That's what irritates people. That's what upsets people. And so Jesus comes teaching, he comes preaching, and then thirdly, though, he comes healing. Matthew describes the sickness that Jesus comes. He says he heals every disease and every affliction among the people. That's a way of saying there was no disease or affliction that was beyond his power. But then he, he wants to get even more specific. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with Various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons. And now he differentiates here those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Why does he do that? Because it was not 
uncommon in their day that if someone was having seizures, maybe as a result of epilepsy or, or even you can have a diabetic seizures, you can have different kinds of neurological things that lead to seizures, but it was not uncommon in their poor medical understanding to assign any of those kind of diseases to demon possession. The disciples had spent enough time watching Jesus heal to recognize there's a difference between demon possession and, and someone who's simply paralyzed or someone who's suffering from some form of epilepsy or some other kind of disease. That's why he differentiates here because he's differentiating between the physical and the spiritual. When Jesus brings his power to bear, and you can see this through the Gospels, he does it in primarily three realms. He, he exerts his power over the physical illnesses of people and, and diseases and leprosy and blindness and deaf and lame and paralyzed. He exercises his power over the spiritual realm with the casting out of demons. Even the demons must obey him. They recognize who he is, and when he tells them to leave, they have to leave. They don't, they, they don't have their own authority. They have to submit to him. So he goes physical, he goes spiritual, and he goes natural world. And you see this when he does things like feeding 5,000 or telling the, the Sea of Galilee to be still or getting into the boat, and suddenly they're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so he exerts control and his power over all the elements of the world that we live in over all the elements of the world that Satan was operating in and the way that he exerts his power in this sin-fallen and very dark world. There are some afflictions, there are some afflictions that are the result of sin. There's just no way around that. <clears throat> One example of those happens in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 5, and it's lengthier, but I want to read this to you, verses 8 through 14. It's an example of this. Jesus said to a man, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. This man had been uh, some form of paralysis. And, and so he was absolutely in, incapable of walking. He lays on a bed. Jesus says, get up, you've been healed, take up your bed and walk. And so it's a stunning moment. Now that day was the Sabbath. So of course that's going to tick off the religious rulers. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Don't you? <laughs> I mean, words fail, but what a bunch of morons. The man's been paralyzed and you don't like him taking too many steps on your Sabbath day. Okay, it's Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take your bed, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Oh, now we're going to get to the bottom of this. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. I love this. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, and we'll get to this in the future of Jesus' ministry, where there was a crowds. When the crowds would gather, he didn't want them because they were going to try to kill him. And this was one of those moments. And I love this, though, because Jesus has healed the guy, and now he goes looking for him. Jesus tracks him down in the busy temple area, and he says, see, you are well. Now listen to this, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. We don't have any other detail than that, but this man's affliction was the result of sinful behavior. We don't know what that was. We don't know if he was doing something and in the process of that, maybe he was robbing somebody, trying to run away from him, and he fell and, and, and broke his back. We, we don't know. We don't know. Maybe, maybe, he, maybe he had done something and someone had taken justice upon him and broke his back. We don't, we don't know. Maybe he just had been sinning in such a way that God said, if you're going to use your legs to walk around and sin this way, boom, I'm going to afflict you. We don't know. What we do know is whatever affliction he had had was the direct result of being sinful. When we were working through Job, you might remember we have to wrestle with the fact that it's not uncommon for believers to feel like when I'm suffering, it must be some sin that I've done. In Job, the very first book of the Bible is written, is written to help us to understand that there are times when you and I will suffer and it is not the result of sins that we have done. It isn't. It isn't. I have known this temptation. More than once I have laid with a kidney stone trying to think through, what have I done, <laughs> right? 
Like I've known this temptation. This, this is not, if you've been tempted, you, this is not an uncommon temptation. First book of the Bible, God wants to understand that's not the case. However, however, having said that, there are times we suffer even physically, not just because we live in a sin-fallen world where there's disease and affliction, but because we've sinned. Paul backs this up later when he talks about communion, right? When he says, you should take it in a worthy manner because some of you haven't done this. And for this reason, some of you are sick and have even died. So there can be physical affliction that is the direct result of sin. How do we know the difference? And, and I can't go back and re-preach Job. I will say this to you. God is not in the business of making it a mystery to you. A good father, a good parent, if you're going to discipline your child, if I knew one of my kids did something wrong when they were little, let's say they're three or four and um, we told them, don't, don't swipe your finger through that chocolate cake. This never happened. So my children were not chocolate cake swipers. So, but, but don't swipe your, your finger through that chocolate cake. And we come in and there's a swipe finger and chocolate on the face. I know what they did, but I don't say anything to them. I just grab them up, march them to their bedroom, put them over my knee and spank them and leave them alone. Is that a good father? That's not a good father, is it? It doesn't mean they don't need a discipline, but it does mean there should be at least a comment. Now, do you know why daddy's about to spank you? I'm about to spank you because I told you not to do this. You disobeyed daddy. You stole. You did this. You were greedy. You did this. And so sin has consequences, and the consequence for this sin, for doing this, this occasion, is this kind of discipline. Whether that was a timeout chair, whether that was uh, corporal punishment of, of some kind, and that's why daddy's disciplining you. I then discipline them, and then I, what do I communicate? Now, I love you. What do you need to say? I'm sorry, daddy. Will you please forgive me? Yes, absolutely, I forgive you, because I love you. I just want to remind you, we live in a sin-fallen world, and when you sin, there are consequences. But we also have a heavenly father who will love you and who longs to forgive you, and you need to deal in truth with him. This is a gospel moment for you. That's good daddy. Is it good fathering then if the heavenly father just, boom, here's discipline, boom. And you're like, I, what, what did I do? No, that'd be terrible fathering. So a good hint to you is this. If you can put your finger on it and be like, yeah, then receive it that way. This is why he even tells elders of the church to go and pray for people and anoint them with oil. And it, there's a question there, and it says, and if they have sinned, that they might be forgiven and healed. In other words, there's a conversation that happens in that moment. Not all sin that you've done is what results in it. And not all physical afflictions is because you've sinned in some way. But sometimes it is. Jesus came healing that. But there's other things that we, we suffer because we just live in a sin-fallen world. People will get sick and disease. Smitty is where he's at because we live in a sin-fallen world. Uh, people have cancer right now because they live in a sin-fallen world. People are struggling with, with diabetes and neurological disorders and various medical issues and anxiety and all, because we live in a sin-fallen world. We live in our physical flesh that's breaking down over time. And so we should not approach people thinking, oh, this is because you have sinned, but we should recognize we live in a dark place. King Jesus deliver us. When King Jesus begins to lay out his power, he begins to demonstrate even this is under my control. And he cares about what is even happening in their individual daily life. You're dealing with this disease? Let me heal this. Let me heal this. And what's fascinating is which of the diseases does it say that he heals? Every one of them. Do you think every single person that came, to God came and got healed also believed? They didn't. As we will study the Gospel of Matthew as we move forward, you'll recognize that at times people, they received blessings from the king, but they never became a follower of the king. And that just reminds us that this king is a merciful and compassionate king. And so we live in a world that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And there is common grace that people receive. 
These healings demonstrate the compassion of Jesus. When he came to break the chains of sin and darkness, when he came to usher in his kingdom, he did it with teaching, correcting error with truth. He did it with preaching, proclaiming truth and a call to action. And he did it with healing, delivering those in bondage and in suffering. And so we can dig then a little bit deeper. What, what happens as this kingdom goes forth? Well, it's, it starts to go global. And, and Matthew wants us to understand that with all this geographic information. And I continue to be impressed with how focused Matthew was on geography. Matthew loved him some maps. Like no gospel writer says more about locations than Matthew does. And, and in this little passage, this introduction, he wants us to understand how widespread and how varied it was. And so he gives us these regions. Let me, just, let me just help walk you through them. Galilee, first of all, and you'll see that at the top uh, of the screen, not the very top there. You see Syrophoenicia just underneath that. You'll see Galilee, the kind of that mustardy yellow kind of place. Um, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee was that whole region. It's an area of about 70 by 40 miles. It was comprised of some 200 different cities and villages. Now, Josephus writes about this region about a generation after Jesus, and Josephus claimed that there was 3 million people in this region. Uh, most of his numbers, frankly, seem a little high based on other archaeology that's been done. That's not a shot at Josephus. He's one of the earliest historians where it's not just fable writer or myth writer, but here's facts of history. So he's doing the best he can. But we could safely say a couple million. Uh, even if he's off by a million, uh, the numbers would bear up that at least one to two million people, and he could be right. It could be upwards of three, three million people. Jesus is traveling around this whole region. Now, how long would it have taken Jesus to go throughout all of Galilee? At least a few months. If he went to two or three villages or cities, and there was usually several within, a, within walking distance throughout the day, um, you know, there's no Uber in, in this day. So uh, we're walking here. So I, would, I start maybe in this little town and I get up that morning. I do some teaching. I then walk, I don't know, uh, a few miles, five, seven miles and stop at the next one uh, right around midday, do another season of teaching. Then maybe go to a third one and teach there in the evening then spend the night, heal some people along the way. Then do that again. If Jesus did that seven days a week, it never took a break. It would have taken him at least three months. So it's more likely we're looking at about six months time frame of traveling throughout all of Galilee doing this. And so Jesus is spending a significant and extensive amount of time quite a bit away from Jerusalem, the capital. He would have been an exhausting season of ministry. I've had the occasion over the years to go and speak at different camps at different occasions. And, and I can just tell you, preaching twice a day, five days a week is exhausting. Uh, the, the common estimate when they've done it is a, is a 40 to 50 minute sermon is the physical and mental equivalent of an eight hour work day. And having done both, uh, it is, it is just an exhausting enterprise. And so this would have been physically exhausting. So when you see these moments, Jesus was tired and Jesus sits down, like he is working all the time, the crest of the crowd. But then it goes on and talks about Syria. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. Syria is to the north there. So it's not saying that Jesus traveled as far north, but because of the, uh, the merchants that would travel through the area, the fame begins to spread. People from Syria start to travel south to get healing and start to travel south to try to hear this ministry and to receive from Jesus. This is like a hearkening back to Naaman. Remember Naaman was the Syrian general who has leprosy. They take the little Jewish girl as a prisoner and as a slave in his house. And she says, I know where he can get healed. He needs to go to the prophet. So the Syrian general travels all the way down and God heals him as he dips in the Jordan. His flesh is made like new, like a newborn baby. And it is a foreshadowing of this. That Gentiles and people that were previously the enemies of the Jews are now receiving from this king. It's an amazing moment. Because it takes a secure king to be willing to receive his enemies and make them his citizens. But Jesus does this. This is a Syria was, uh, why differentiate even this way? It is the geographic location, 
But Matthew also understands his readers. Syria is what the Romans called this whole area. Uh, Galilee was primarily ruled by Herod. Syria is ruled by the Romans. And then this third one is this Decapolis area. And you can see that uh, on the right-hand side of the Jordan River. It's called Decapolis because literally the name means 10, Deca, uh, cities. Decapolis. And so it's a region of some 10, 10 cities. It's, it's the, on the other side of the Jordan. Jesus' fame is spreading in such a way that literally what Matthew is saying is people are coming from near and far to receive the prophet's power and deliverance. Like the way teaching, preaching, is he- and healing is Matthew's way of pointing out the spread of the kingdom of Christ. Like when Jesus comes, truth goes out and people are called to respond and they are delivered from their sin. That's what teaching, preaching, and healing do. So also when Jesus came, his kingdom was intended to go global. And so very quickly, within a matter of months, less than a year, this whole massive geographic area of millions of people is hearing about the prophet. Uh, Guys are coming back. They went on a journey with their dad to go sell some fish, and they were blind, and they're coming back to the town, and they can see now. And people are like, whoa, who did this? Well, it was this, this Jewish rabbi named Jesus. Well, do you remember Aunt Hildy? Aunt Hildy can't even walk. Let's take her. Why wouldn't you? Think of someone that you know that is terribly sick right now. And if you knew Jesus was operating, a few weeks ago I was telling my wife I read a news article. It was terrifying. Uh, it was a <clears throat> nurse. She's an RN. And she had a kidney stone. And um, they did a procedure and she got sepsis from the kidney stone. And she, uh, they put her in a drug-induced coma. And she woke up and they had amputated her arms and her legs. For kidney stone. It's devastating. Some of you have followed the story of uh, Sierra. She, have seen this on Facebook. She's a mother of two little boys. She has suffered something very similar. Has lost her arms and her legs. If you heard, if you went home to your neighborhood today and your next door neighbor said, man, I just was visiting some family in Toronto and there was this guy there and and you remember I was deaf. I can now hear you perfectly because he healed me. How do you not hire a private ambulance to take that RN or that Sierra and drive straight to Toronto? You tell me you wouldn't do it? I'd do it in a heartbeat. I'd rent a bus and we'd clear out the hospitals, wouldn't you? Because when the power shows up, you want anybody and everybody who needs that power to get in touch with the power. There is a burden here that happens that you want the kingdom to go global because the blessing of the love and the power and the truth and the proclamation of the king changes your very life. This is what is supposed to happen when we get saved. It goes global Because we want everybody to get in contact with the king. And Matthew is telling us when the king breaks in, this is what it starts to look like. It's not for your personal comfort, but it's that you have been healed and you have been taught and you have been blessed in such a way that you want everybody to know about it. You are not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to the Jews and to the Gentile. This is the deliverance people need. And so he's telling us that with every soul that is saved, every healing that's taking place, every demon that's cast out, every heart that's turned to Christ, the kingdom of Satan is shrinking because the kingdom of Christ is growing. 
But I want to point something out to you at the end of these verses. It says this in verse 25, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Notice what it says. It says that they followed him. Now, I want to make sure that we understand that statement. Because I want you to know this, not everybody is on board. We know that crowds following Jesus at times will swell to the tens of thousands. Now, that doesn't seem that shocking because if this was happening, and it was, of course it swells to tens of thousands. Of course, out of millions of people, tens of thousands want to be around us and see this. Look, even if I didn't need healing, wouldn't you want to see that every day? I mean, I'm the guy that gets emotional watching YouTube videos of the people that are deaf getting their cochlear implants. Man, I love, I love to see some healing happening and deliverance happening. I love that. So even if I didn't need it, I'd want to be around it. And so these people are following Jesus. We know thousands upon thousands will be there. They say later that he teaches and preaches so differently. He teaches as one with authority and with power. People show up blind and walk away seeing. They show up deaf and they walk away hearing. People don't even show up walking. They show up lame and they walk away, and they go walk away then. It's, it is amazing. The guy yesterday who just showed up to see Jesus and he had lame hands is the same guy the next day that's helping pass out some bread to you. But following Jesus in the crowd is not the same as being on board with the mission of the king. The truth is that people will come when they hurt, and when they are healed, they go away. People will come when they are confused, but they think when they think they have the answers, they go away. The truth is, we, most of us, have been around church life and, and Christianity long enough that we recognize there are people that when life stinks, there are a lot around Jesus and the church, and when life doesn't stink so much, they're not around anymore. We've all had that experience. We've all had the experience of sharing the gospel repeatedly with people and believing they were believers, and then they're not. It's revealed later. The disciples get duped by this. The apostles get, get duped by this. And so when we're right here at the beginning of the ministry, I just want you to see when the kingdom power and the message goes out, there will always be people that are in the crowd that are following, but that is not the same as being a kingdom citizen on mission. And I think what's hard is that can be very discouraging for us at times. And so how do we work through that? Well, I think there's answers there as well. First of all, first of all, I just want to remind you, the kingdom does bring blessing, hope, love, and encouragement and healing. It brings these things. As kingdom citizens, as believers, we are called to love our neighbors. We are called to help the hurting. We are called to care for the dispossessed. We are called to minister grace to the sinner, hope for the lost, and help for the needy. We are called to stand for those who can't stand for themselves. We are called to stand for justice and truth. We are called to minister kindness and grace. We are called to visit the ones in the, in the prisons and in the hospitals. We are called to, to minister to the people in our neighborhood nobody else wants to talk to. We are called to seek in love and in truth those that nobody wants to be around. We are called to be kingdom citizens. The kingdom always brings blessing. The Bible says here that Jesus healed everyone that came. The primary blessing comes through the power of the gospel. People being saved, but it also means that you and I will minister at times to people who never repent and believe. Who will befriend and love and build relationship with people that never turn to Christ. And that's okay because that's part of what the kingdom does in this already not yet. It is infectious and it is designed, as we will see later, for you and I to be salt and light. And so that means that there are people that will use our resources of time and energy and gifting and money that never, ever, ever come to the king. But the power of the kingdom, the light of Christ can't help but pierce the darkness. Do not be discouraged by the light of the kingdom not dispelling every shadow it's the already not yet. But rather rejoice that the light of Christ always dispels shadows. 
Secondarily, the process of building the kingdom is just that. It's a process. There are some who will reject the gospel today and believe tomorrow. Some people who reject in their 20s believe in their 80s. God is in it for the long game, not the short game. For over 4,000 years, the earth groaned in darkness. And and what was most prominent was evil. (laughs) There was no Messiah yet. And so we had lights and hints and, and even God's people, Israel, blow it. And it's like, what is going on here? For the last 2,000 years since Jesus showed up, God has been slowly prying the fingers of the enemy off of the throats of humanity. He's been doing it as he is saving the souls of men and women, boys and girls. He is not bound by time or pressure like we are. Jesus never hid truth to get a bigger crowd. And at times he's so clearly offensive with the word it drives these thousands of people away. But until those moments, he was quite content to continue to bless, teach, and preach, and heal. The the building of the kingdom is a process. View it as a process, not as a one-time event. Why hasn't it happened yet? Why hasn't God done this? Why hasn't God done this? Why hasn't God suddenly just blessed our church with all these people? It's a process. Maybe we're building the kingdom and we'll never see the visible fruit in front of our faces here, but only when we get to eternity. You may not see your child get saved. You may pass from this earth and a loved one you've been desperately sharing the gospel, you won't, but you, there's a process and the king is on the move. Do not be discouraged. The building of the kingdom is a process. Third, third just so you know, Jesus knows your struggle. And he understands your struggles with kingdom success. We want the power on full display now. I know we do. I know, I know I'm not the only one here this morning that wants Jesus just to show up and go, boom, there you go. I'm like, bring it. Yes. In his servant songs in Isaiah, Jesus makes this very clear. It puts words in the heart of Jesus. And Isaiah says this, I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Did Jesus ever feel that way? In Luke 9, 41, Jesus talks to them and he says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? When he taught his disciples, they were worried about not having enough food. The disciples at this moment, they're in a boat and they're like, man, we didn't bring enough bread with us. Do you know when that happened? We didn't bring enough bread. I don't know if we're going to have enough for lunch. They said that, get this now, the day after he fed 5,000. The very next day. Man, I don't know if we're going to have enough bread for lunch. Jesus says, do you not understand? Mark 14, Jesus says this to them about the response to that. You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You know what Matthew's giving us in these two verses? You know what he's actually giving? He's giving us Doolittle's Raiders. That's actually what we're getting here. We're getting a taste of Jesus saying, the kingdom is coming. I'm putting you on notice. When I come and when I show up, my power is in control. My rule is in control. Darkness, your day is done. You're dead. You just don't know it yet. You've lost. You just don't know it yet. That's what Matthew is preparing us to receive here from the life of Christ. He's just giving us a foretaste. John later will write, if I were to tell you all that Jesus did, there's not even books that could hold it. Matthew knows he can only give us sampling. You know what this is? This is Costco sampling. That's all this is. is a taste of it. It's a taste. Don't you want the full meal? So Isaiah goes on and says, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with God. The first comfort he gives him his own heart. So Jesus, I love this because you've heard it said before, Martin Lloyd-Jones says it, I quote him all the time on it, preach to your heart, don't listen to your heart. My heart wants to be discouraged, I've got to preach to it. Jesus is preaching to his own heart. You know what? It's going to be unveiled one day. But he doesn't stop there in Isaiah. He goes on and says this, and now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, 
to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. My God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of evil of Israel. You know what? It's too little for Jesus just to save the Jews. That's too small a project is what he's saying. I will make you as a light for the nations to like Syria and Decapolis and all of Galilee. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. You know what's going to happen? I'm going to reverse the, I'm going to flip the script. Kings shall see and arise. Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. My heart longs for King Jesus to come back. Does yours? But until he does, the sheer fact that you're sitting here this morning is a declaration that his power is still on the move. Saving men and women, boys and girls of every tribe, tongue, and nation as he builds his kingdom. And I want you to know that in a discouraged, darkened time, that power brings me comfort. He's not done. Let's get on mission because the kingdom has come.